Welcome to the Dear Africans podcast, where we help aspiring students navigate the complex and often overwhelming world of university applications. Hello and welcome to another episode of Dear Applicants. I'm your host, Jonathan, and with me today is Justin, who studied at Northwestern and who is also the CEO of Ivy Prep. So we have a big fish here today. Thank you so much big for being fish. here. Yeah, biggest. <laughs> I made it, finally. <laughs> Thank uh, you for being here, Justin. I've seen every episode of Dear Applicants and uh, I can't believe I'm on it. Yeah, this has been coming for a while, hasn't it? Well, thank Very you. So. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, I think this is going to be, we have quite a lot to talk about, quite a lot to cover today. Uh, let's get straight into it. And I think you can tell us, we'll start with who Justin is and we can start all the way in the beginning. Little Justin. Little Justin. <laughs> uh, I'm American, as I'm sure you can tell from my accent. Um, I've been living in Asia for about 12 years, mm -hmm. but I was born in Brooklyn, uh, Brooklyn, New York. Um, my parents are immigrants from Trinidad and Tobago, which is, do you know where Trinidad and Tobago is? Caribbean. Uh, yeah, so for those who, who don't know, it's an island in the southernmost part of the Caribbean. Um, yeah, so I grew up in Brooklyn, I'd say, for the first few years of my life until, I don't know, I was about like eight or nine. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, yeah, and then I would say that like, I, I lived in uh, a few different places before I ended up uh, residing in Princeton, New Jersey for high school and, and other things, yeah. Okay, and you were telling me before the camera started rolling that there was quite a difference, right, in the sort of academic environment you were in, and I think the second environment perhaps had a marked effect on you and how that shaped you later on. For sure, so I'd say that like most of the communities that I like grew up in, in both in Brooklyn and then other parts of New Jersey um, were, aren't, were not as competitive mm -hmm. as Princeton, New Jersey. So like when I moved to Princeton, I was probably in seventh or eighth grade, and, and that was like a rude awakening for me. I think like prior to that, I had always been like the top of my class. Like it wasn't a very competitive environment prior to that. Um, and then as soon as I get to like Princeton, uh, it's just like really competitive, Asian American, South Asian, uh, uh, just wealthy, like upper class type uh, families, right? A lot of these families had like either uh, graduated from Princeton itself or like a lot of them are immigrants honestly in central New Jersey it's like a lot of students and families that kind of went through what my family went through so like the typical uh, immigrant move I guess is like to move to New York make a lot of money then when you have like uh, kids move to the suburbs of New Jersey and settle down so I had entered that environment and that was quite jarring honestly like it, it's it I wouldn't say it's exactly like Singapore, but it was akin to uh, just a really competitive, a lot of tiger parents type of uh, environment. And I'm guessing your parents weren't tiger parents. Not at all. <laughs> my, my parents, I'd say my dad especially, was more like laissez-faire um, in terms of um, what we did and what we wanted to do. And like, as long as we felt supported, like that was kind of just the value system there. Um, but yeah, I remember like when I moved to Princeton, uh, I wasn't at the top of my class anymore. And I was like, wait, I'm not special, blah. Uh, and it became, it became an environment that was all about where are we going to school? Like, like what's, what CCR are you taking? What's your SAT score? Just like that kind of like energy. Um, yeah, I wouldn't say it's cutthroat, but like. As close as it can. I, I mean, like, and I went to a public school. Like I wasn't at, the boarding schools are even more competitive, mm -hmm. right? Um, but yeah, like it was that type of environment. We were all still friends, but there was a lot of like, kids who wanted to go to summer school. So like summer school wasn't like this thing for a lot of Americans, it's like, not punishment, but it's like, oh, you're like having to catch up for uh, having fallen behind in some particular year. We were like, more school, let's go. <laughs> like, like if you weren't going to summer school in high school, uh, it was almost like you're getting left out of camp, I guess is like the, the way that we thought about it. Um, so yeah, very like different contrast. Did people view summer school as a, you know, particularly formative building block for their college applications? Because that's something that a lot of parents in Asia do think, right? Yeah, I would say that I think the motivation for going to summer school was so that you'd be better prepared for whatever your curriculum was the following year. So if you knew you were taking like a handful of APs the next year, it was like, oh, I don't want to not get a good score. So I'm gonna basically study for the AP before I take the AP class before I take So basically the AP doing class. a foundation, just getting yeah. your leg up in that particular area. Yeah. Okay. And I'd say on top of that, especially in like the later years, you're doing that plus SAT tuition. Okay, so it wasn't so much a feather in your cap as it was just preparation. Yeah, it was that you didn't want to get left behind. So okay. I remember my experience was like begging my parents uh, to like send me to summer school. Um, so I did my, my summer, 
uh, curriculum at Petty. Petty is okay. like a, a local boarding school in central New Jersey. How um, did you spend your other summers when you went at Petty? Uh, I mean, like, I, I did a lot of CCA and volunteering work in high okay. school. Again, it was part of, like, the, the understanding is that you're here to build your profile as competitively as possible. So I spent my at least two summers volunteering at Princeton Medical Center. Okay. I think the goal to hit uh, while there was, like, having 300-plus hours of volunteering. So Was that a self-imposed goal, or was that just the no. understood norm? Oh, I think the, the, the norm was that if you wanted to get into a top-tier school, that was the standard back then, right? Um, so, yeah, I had a friend who had been doing that, uh, and then for about two years, yeah, I did Princeton Medical Center. Um, but that had nothing to do with what you did in university. Absolutely right? So it was just volunteering for volunteering sake? Kind or? of. I mean, okay. like, for better or for worse, our high school was very, uh, hey, like, engages, engage in as many things as you can. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately... I would say it's so they would actively motivate you to engage sure. in all these things. And I think it was just a cultural understanding between all of us is that okay. like, you know, whether uh, I would recommend this today or not is different, but it was a very much a jack of all trades thing. Like play a sport, do volunteering, uh, be whatever, a leader within this organization or club, start this initiative. Um, I guess there are some similarities to that now, but back then it was not guided information. It was just kind of like, oh, that person is doing this. I need to also volunteer there too. So that competitive environment where you're like, okay, if he's doing something, I need yeah. to do something. So you're constantly leveling up in that yeah. sense. But Lord of the Flies in that in the sense right. that like no one's really advising us in a way that made sense. Okay, so it's just understood, right? It was just yeah, sort sure. of philosophy within school. Is that yeah. something that you see in Singapore today or in Asia more broadly, given that you've worked around Asia? I see it more now. Okay. But I would say when I started working in college admissions, it wasn't. Um, I think there's more of an uh, an understanding on like what the U.S. is looking for. Um, you know, what we get to take for granted as Americans is like we grow up knowing what it is, right? So, like even if no one teaches us, there's such an expectation that like if you're going to get into a really good school, you're gonna have to have these SAT scores and this like level of um, I don't know commitments to different things over several years. Yeah. Do you notice any differences in, you know, from when you grew up to the students you meet and see today now? Oh, for sure. I would say one of the things that's, um, it's so wonderful to see, but also, I don't know, I don't know what the right word is. There are so many talented kids doing so many amazing things, and they're not even 17 or 18 yet. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you know, even as an adult, Some it's frighteningly just, it's talented just ones, so, yeah. it's so, you're flabbergasted by like how much they're, they're able to apply themselves get funding, have entire businesses. I mean, I think access has, has definitely changed uh, generation to generation in that way. Um, but that's not to, to take away from the amount of like just talent that I get. I think you get to see working in this industry and that's honestly very ex- inspiring. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think fundamentally a difference that you'll see between international schools and even, sorry, international students and domestic students is international students just have to try harder because it's more difficult, the application system for the US um, than it is for Uh, citizens in America, yeah. And you were telling me that there was this sort of cultural zeitgeist almost in uh, when in your school when you were growing up, that the school would actively grant you guys with a certain amount of foresight as to what you need to do for college well before, right? So you weren't scrambling in your last couple of years. I, I'd say so. I would say every most U.S. high schools have a dedicated team of guidance counselors that like are looking to to, to set you up for success, have internal deadlines, things like that. I'm sure they're a lot better than they were when I was coming up to. Um, but it's not perfect. I mean, kind of like the reason that admissions officers, sorry, uh, admissions consultants exist is because there's just the ratio between guidance counselors and people mm. who can help students is just a skew, right? A team of like 10 guidance counselors to like 300 students, uh, it's just not reasonable. And, and often those, the ratio is even worse, right? Well, absolutely, it depends, I mean, country to country, school to school. Um, I would like to think that consultants exist so that you get personalized help, right? Um, and even like there are so many international schools that I see now that have dedicated uh, entire departments uh, just for helping their student class or student body, but even they can't give the, the just the dedicated weekly amount of like service and, and like edits to essays and like advice and connect them with different resources. It's just not feasible to do, right? So, so what, did, what advice did you have when you were applying to university? Obviously, there is this culture of I have to do X, Y, and Z, uh, but moving into actually writing your application essays and apply, choosing universities and applying to them, 
Was there any support? Was there any structure that was in place for you? I would say, I think my parents did their best, mm -hmm. but I didn't have the guidance that I would have loved to have. Like, okay. like the amount of resources now, I think both online and in person is just so much more vast. Um, so to answer your question, did I have any? Kind of. <laughs> I mean, we met with our guidance counselors like once a term, I guess, to discuss it, but there was no one really kind of measuring or outlining like these are the schools you should be applying for given what your interest is. I think a lot of it was just kind of figuring that out on your own. You're just um, very self-sufficient when going through the process. Very much so. And, you know, as like a 16, 17-year-old kid that's like navigating that, plus being a teenager, plus, plus developing your, your profile itself, it's just really hard to allocate time, try to like even think about like, oh, well, this school is brand named, so therefore is it good? Is it great? Uh, all of my, all of my uh, uh, friends are wanting to apply to this program, so therefore it must be for me. I think there's a lot of that, um, but that's not necessarily true, obviously, right? Uh, what's that? So brand name, yeah. definitely something that people take into consideration well, well, back when you were applying and also very much today in Singapore. Yeah. Were ranking something that was very big on everyone's mind as well? I don't think rankings will ever not be mm -hmm. uh, the superficial. Just by way virtue that. of them having numbers. For sure. <laughs> um, yeah, it was true back then and it's true now. I think what I know now is that a lot of these publications are just that, right? They're not necessarily, um, I don't know, adept uh, uh, kind of... Uh, they're, they're not really kind of reasoning that this school is better than this school. Um, there is a checklist, there is a formula to it, but it doesn't mean anything, right? Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, you'll see that those schools are repeatedly ranked almost the same. They might shift one or two slots, but, it, but that's not indicative of whether your child will succeed there or whether they'll be happy there, right? Or that the best program is there for you. Um, so you can listology all you want, <laughs> but ultimately I think it's, you have to have an informed discussion with someone um, other than your peers, too, to kind of rank for yourself what, what's best. And so, so tell us what went right and what went wrong when you were doing that application of yours. Wait, did you have someone to have that informed discussion with, by the way? Not really, right? Not really. I think I had what most kids often do, even still, which is just a guidance counselor that you meet with. You present them a list. They give you some feedback on whether you have chances of getting into that. Sometimes what I've heard, and, I, and this varies from school to school and country to country, some schools will even... Um, give you biased feedback, knowing that like it's in the incentive of some high schools to allow you to apply to schools that they think that you can get into, as opposed to like um, shooting your shot, right? Um, I've definitely seen that to be true even here, yeah, yeah, um, and in America as well. But uh, no, I didn't really have anyone to kind of qualify that for me. Back then, it was just kind of, you know, you know, it's funny enough. Like back then you submitted it, you had to print out your application. I had to mail. Oh, and then mail it? Yeah, I had to mail my application, right? Did you get, what, did you get your results back in, in letter form? Or? I think, yeah, I did, oh, okay. I did. Like, uh, yeah, and your rejections too, right? Um, but obviously that's different now. All this is digital and online. But I remember even when I was applying, I had like a portfolio, an art portfolio, so I had to go to like uh, Kinko's, which was like the, the printing shop uh, in America, and print out like all these copies of all these different things I had done. Um, and you have to be very diligent about how you organize your application. Um, so other than that, like, and being guided on how to do that uh, segment, not really, kind of just choosing your schools and applying. Okay, yeah. and then back to the application, I had asked you about what went right, what went wrong. Yeah, I would say, you know, personally I was at a crossroads. I was very much interested in tech and computer science. Um, but I was also very much an artistic student. Okay. So I, you know, I was involved in like a lot of art clubs, and I, for whatever reason, just had kind of taken to a particular class I took in high school. Um, I took a bit of programming, but I wouldn't call myself a programmer. I wasn't very. Uh, I wouldn't say I was as competitive as the other kids applying for CS programs. So was that you? You an artistic kid, but you also wanted to be sort of have that hard sciencey background as well? Yeah. Like I mean, a lot of students we see today as well, right? Who may love history, but then they think maybe engineering. Yeah. yeah. I was, I was, and I see this all the time even now. It's like, I like this, but I also like this. How do I blend these two things? For me, it was definitely art and computer science. And so um, I had a pretty extensive um, graphic design. I was really into uh, photorealistic vectors, um, kind of using Adobe. What are those? Oh, okay. So basically, uh, Adobe Illustrator, I don't think it was that new. I think it had a few versions that it was out already. Um, and what I loved doing was taking like a photo 
and then recreating it as accurately as possible using Illustrator. Oh, okay. Right, so vectors are kind of like these like little artistic shapes. Um, so I did that. I had a pretty extensive portfolio in doing that, and the program that I was looking for at university were like digital, something that blended business and animation and video game design. So at the time, and I'm probably dating myself, like video games, video game universities and video game schools, the fact that you could study that in university was relatively new. And that was very cool for me as like a young gamer person who was like in love with um, just the digital media and design of everything. Um, so I was really looking for programs like that Honestly, just like Googling it and trying to find the right uh, fit for me. So what went well about it, I guess, is I got into a decent amount of schools. But I think the internal, the internal indecision that I had, that I wish I had someone to talk to about, was um, kind of like which program offered what and what would my life be like. I think to kind of generalize, I was between going to what was essentially a trade school uh, or going to like a very competitive school that happened to have a new program. So my dream program at the time, which I didn't get into, got waitlisted. Uh, no, I got deferred. Um, was uh, Penn's Digital Media and Design program. Um, that was like my heart was set on that. So I did ED. I did ED to that, I believe. And uh, yeah, when I didn't get in, I was like devastated. <laughs> and then after that, I, I I didn't really have anyone to talk to about. Well, what do I do now? Like now that my like one school that I poured all my like dreams and hopes in, what are the rest of these schools that I got into? <laughs> so yeah, I'll take a pick. Uh, honestly, that's how that's what it, I hate to say it, but like that's that's the reality of what actually happened. Yeah. So was there anything that made you pick Northwestern from the the options that you had? I'm so embarrassed to say this, Jaunty. Uh, yeah, I got into a, a handful of decent schools that were on the same level and same caliber. Um, I had not done as much research into Northwestern. Mm -hmm. But, and I think this still happens today, like a lot of uh, high schools will put up what universities you uh, applied to or got into. Um, and so because I had gotten into Northwestern, especially because I went to a competitive high school, there was a discussion of like, oh, Justin got into Northwestern for computer science. Like, oh, how did he do that? And, you know, there's a lot of that, right? All of your friends kind of turn on you. Yeah, yeah, like, oh, how did he get into that school? Um, and I think because, this is not the only reason, but I think because there was a bit of buzz socially about like, oh, everyone cares that I got into that school. I was like, oh, maybe that I should consider that um, as, as one of my top choices. Uh, you know, ultimately they had a new program um, that they no longer offer there called Animate Arts. Um, and I wish I had done more research into what was required for that program. Um, but yeah, I, I ultimately matriculated into Northwestern as a computer science engineer within McCormick, which okay. is the engineering school. And so, so you go to Northwestern. Yeah. Did the lack of conversation with someone come back to bite you? Or yeah. Come back to haunt you? So this is what I would say went wrong. Okay. <laughs> is uh, I get to university, and I think like a lot of students, they, um, I mean, it's just so exciting, right? Like whether you're an American citizen or international, like. Going to college is exciting. Oh, yeah. It's, my parents aren't here. <laughs> um, you get to define who you are. You get to define your life. You get to make choices that you know, are, are your choices to make. Um, and I wanted to study so many different things. Like I, wanted to, I just wanted to have the freedom to take more electives than I was allowed to take. Right? I wanted to study Japanese. I knew that I wanted to study abroad at one point. I wanted to do like uh, work study type of things. Um, and I would say that this is not true of every school, but when you apply to a competitive program, especially for engineering or computer science, for many, um, where at other schools your first year you'd kind of get to pick and choose, like I'm gonna take some of these humanities and then also take courses that are um, required of my, 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 de my degree. Um, for CS at Northwestern it was like back-to-back -back programming classes oh, and like, okay. good luck. So if, no common curriculum, nothing. I think you would get one slot uh, and Northwestern operated on a trimester. Oh, so you then. really wouldn't have liked that? Yeah, and so I, like, I got to take one class. So I guess I only got to take like three unique classes that were not in line with programming, and that made me... In how long a span of time? It, within the year, oh, right? Okay. So like I, maybe I'm getting it wrong a little bit, but like you could only take a handful of electives, right. and they weren't a lot. And so I would say like 80 to 90% of my time was just taking programming, and I very much realized that like other parts of what I want to learn that make me happy were not being nurtured. And that 
kind of created, uh, I mean, it very much created a, a scenario where my first year at college was just, I was very unhappy. I was like, I don't get to study what I want to study. And like, I have so much heart to do so many, much more. But um, I guess the, what I'm trying to say here is that really examining what the course curriculum is, even year on year, um, and even like the opportunities that you have and don't have is so important to go through with someone instead of just being like, yay, I got into this top school. And I'll go there. Now I get That's to like run it, free so yeah. and do whatever I want. Like, absolutely not. Um, so yeah. <laughs> and so, so you wish you had that conversation with someone before? I do. I had it too late. What ended up happening is I had that at the end of my freshman year with the guidance counselors uh -huh. there. And then I transferred out my sophomore year. But what happens for a lot of students is you then can not lose credits, but you wasted credits. Like what I transferred into had programming <laughs> modules no had no application for um, what I eventually ended up studying. So yeah. yeah. What did you transfer into? When did you end up? Studying? So that's the thing. I like I, I went there for a particular program called Animate Arts, um, which is a mix of like art programming and sound design. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then I learned while I was at Northwestern, oh, I don't have to be an, a CS student to do this. Okay. So I like burned myself out in high school and even my first year of college. And I'm like, I didn't have to do that. Uh, you could be a comm student because it was kind of like in between different schools, right? So I switched into a, what's called organizational communications, which is somewhere between like a leadership and a business program at uh, Northwestern. Uh, and then I double majored in animate arts as well. And then I ended up picking up a minor in Asian American studies, which is like race relations and immigration relations um, at the school as well. Yeah. So I'm, I'm just thinking here, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but, but the fact that you didn't have space to have those discussions earlier on, did that play any role in you eventually becoming an admissions consultant, wanting to help students not go through the same sort of, you know, avoidable journeys that you did? Very much so. Okay. I'd say that, you know, admissions consulting is the output of something that's a deeper core um, uh, belief in just something I'm interested in, which is like I love helping students and families find their path, or at least discussing like what their purpose is a lot earlier. A lot of kids never have this conversation. Mm -hmm. A lot of these kids that we work with, um, we're honestly asking them to investigate themselves for the first time. Um, I, I see this especially being true in Asia where it's just so competitive and they're really just kind of rushing to the next achievement, rushing to the next kind of like uh, exam to ace, then no one ever stopped to ask them like, hey, why are we doing this? And like, what, what career do we want? And why do we want that career? Um, so it, in many ways, like this is, this is an example in which you can kind of like be um, a part of kind of solving that issue. But I do think that like, that's a conversation that I, I've also, con I used to consult like MBA, sorry, right. uh, um, older students who are uh, applying for their MBA. Um, that's a conversation you can have at any age, honestly. There are people middle-aged that still kind of are like, why am I working this job? But right? it doesn't hurt to have that conversation. It doesn't. On. And the earlier Especially so you can avoid, yeah. uh, you know, I don't want to say mistakes, but, but experiences that may or may not be the best for you. Yeah, and honestly, for a lot of these families, like so much of their financial wealth is, is going into paying for... You know, U.S. universities are not cheap. Yeah. So the earlier you can have that conversation... Uh, as a family, you can you can put more value for money to the experience that they do end up having. Hmm. Yeah, because no no mom or dad wants to send their kid to law school only for them to like drop out in that long journey and decide I don't want to do this anyway. It's a whole it's a disappointment for everyone involved. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, so we've diverged a little bit, but going back to your college experience outside of academics, outside yeah. of that whole foray into computer science and then returning to, well, your, your interest, right? What you had at heart. Uh, what else was going on? You weren't still on the lacrosse team, were you? Oh, no. Okay. You dropped that? So uh, I don't know how I feel about this, but in, in high school, I was uh, captain of the lacrosse team. I never would have guessed. I <laughs> never in a billion years would I have imagined. And while I did enjoy it, I would say that, like a lot of decisions, it was like we need a sport in our portfolio and chose to. And I, yeah, I did. Um, I know it was just interesting to me. And I mean, Central, New, the East Coast, there's a lacrosse culture. Uh, so that was fun. Um, yeah, I mean, I did that. Uh, I did a lot of leadership stuff in high school as well, like courses and like volunteer. I did a lot of volunteering in, in, in high school. Did any of that continue at university? Uh, or was think. it a sort of different path entirely? Because I know you did a lot of work. So I would say that 
because my curriculum was as demanding as it was, my focus almost went entirely to that. Where I found my escape was in working. Uh, so I, my, my, my interest in graphic designing translated into a job that I started my freshman year and did the entire time uh, in, in university. I actually really fell in love with just working, honestly. And, and, and not like working retail like a lot of high school students have the opportunity to do, but like being like in a corporate situation. I mean, I was a graphic designer, right? But like being able to kind of eventually manage a team, I'd say by the end of, end of uh, my junior and senior year, I was like managing a team of graphic designers. Um, and then probably, probably managing most of the projects that were getting publicized on the university campus. So if you saw a flyer up, it was either me or my team having done that. Um, and, you know, I don't know if I should be admitting this, but I skipped a lot of class to, like, just work. Like, that's how much I loved it. And I think that sometimes you can preempt things like that, but sometimes those are just the fun things you find out when you get to university, which is, like, as much as I go, as much as I've, like, been admitted to this great school, I actually really want to work. If you can find out what matters to yeah. you when you're there, and, you know, some classes really matter, some may not, and yeah. you might have time better spent, you know, for you working, for them, for, for students, could be any sort of organization, right? Yeah, for sure. Uh, and that must have been your first experience of quote-unquote management as well. I know you'd had leadership experience in school, you were captain of the lacrosse team, but, <laughs> but this was your first management experience, right? Yeah, for sure. Uh, I mean, I, I think what I, when, I, when I looked back on my transcript of all the things that I have done, um, a lot of it was, uh, I loved leadership courses. I forget the name of it, um, and I hope they still have it, but my favorite course at Northwestern was this, like, um, I want to say it's a two-semester course that was just focused on leadership. Okay. Uh, we have, like, these breakout courses where everyone kind of rotate being leader, and you'd be filmed on camera um, kind of leading a team, and then, like, the TAs would give you feedback on, like, what you could have said that would have been more empowering or this or that. So I, like, enjoyed a lot of things like that which wasn't necessarily part of the curriculum, I think. And yeah. what about the team dynamics? What was that like? The team dynamics? In terms of actually managing a team of people under you. Oh, well, that program was great because they specifically would pair, they, they tried oh, no, 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 to... I'm talking about when you were working for the, as a graphic designer. Oh, yeah. the team dynamics? I mean, that was... You're with a bunch of different graphic designers okay, so of different years is really what it is. It was just you were the senior most graphic designer and then you... Uh, I, the dynamic there was that, like... Uh, there was a system, you're training people how to use the technical okay. uh, software, and then uh, you're delegating projects. So nothing projects. particularly intriguing? Uh, no, I mean, it was, it, wasn't, it was nice. Like, okay. it, was, it was a nice escape. Okay. <laughs> My else? boss is great. <laughs> ah, okay, well, what, what else is going on on campus? On campus? I mean, there's a lot of, like, uh, Northwestern's a very rah-rah uh, sports school. Um, I, you know, I mean, I tried different things. Uh, I was in a fraternity. Um, which is something I never thought I would do. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, I get a lot of questions from international students because obviously that's not part of the culture here, right? Um, not at all. Not at all. So a lot of them are curious. A lot of them are like, what is a fraternity? What's a sorority? Um, my, I'm curious, yeah. <laughs> I think a lot of people see it in, in, in uh, these movies uh, and then, you know, they get intrigued by it. Um, but, uh, but I would say that, you know, if you, if you feel it's something that you want to do, and if you feel that it's something that, if you feel like you meet the right group of people um, that are maybe, I don't know, just who you feel comfortable with, it's worth joining. Do you need to? No. And again, Was like, it worth it to you? I, I think so. I think that like, A while, lot of people who speak positively about fraternities or sororities do, for, do so from a social perspective. Sure. That it gave them a group to hang out with. I don't think that I needed it. Like okay. I wasn't that introverted or shy of a kid, uh, to some degree, I guess. But like, why I loved it, and I understand that I had a very unique experience within um, the Greek life, mm -hmm. because Northwestern was the uh, like the headquartered um, uh, campus or version of our fraternity, right? So I was in Sigma Chi. That was like our, our leading campus. So my experience was very different. It wasn't like broken down house on like off campus. It was very much a privileged, nice place with like a chef and a thing. Um, the the chef. There wasn't. There was okay. a chef inside our. So you lived in the front. We lived in a. Yeah. Uh -huh. I, at one point, I did live there for one year, um, and I originally chose it because a lot of. Uh, I would say that the particular one that I chose, especially that year, was very diverse. And Northwestern can be somewhat homogenous to some degree. It's in a Midwest uh, area, and like it's very. We've all seen kids. the TikTok videos of those. Sure. <laughs> I was looking for a group of, um, I don't know, of, of, of friends who were 
um, more akin to like where I grew up. I grew up in a very like Asian American society. That's who I felt uh, most comfortable around, and and my fraternity that year reflected that. Um, and yeah, like so even one of the reasons that I ended up moving to Singapore. Um, it's just because I've always felt more comfortable around the South Asian and Asian American communities. And those are the communities you were growing up around as well, sure. right, in Princeton? Yeah, 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 yeah. And you had explored Asia quite a bit during your summers. Yeah, so I was pretty determined to um, travel every winter and every summer that I had break. Um, so with the money that I saved up for working in the graphic design office, I would like just basically go on a budget and, uh, yeah, and just fly to, to either Japan or Thailand, primarily. Had you been to Singapore? I had not been to Singapore okay. back then, but I had friends from Singapore. Uh, and I remember, like, they, the way that they would speak about it made it very, uh, I don't know, like, epic. Oh. <laughs> um, Skyscrapers towering into the sky. Very much so, very much so. So I was familiar with traveling to Asia, and, like, I had caught a bit of the travel bug, so I would recommend that, like, for anyone who's... Uh, going to a school where you, the opportunity to, to study overseas is available, please do it. It's so worth it. Um, yeah, so I kind of like did that on my own, not even through Northwestern necessarily. Before we continue, I would like to take a quick break to remind you to subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review on your favorite platform. Your feedback helps us improve and to reach a wider audience to provide further insight into this arduous journey. Also, if you have any questions or suggestions for future episodes, feel free to email us at our email linked in the description below. We'd love to hear from you. And did those experiences of South um, East Asia inform your decision to then move? Because you moved right after university, right? Yeah, more or less. So I probably take, took like a year after I graduated. Um, I graduated during the recession, 2008-2009. Uh, um, and yeah, it was really disheartening to kind of be competing with, you know, uh, friends of your parents who had lost their job, hmm. job market was like not great, right? So I already knew even before I had graduated that um, I was interested in Asia in general, in terms of like my life, um, all the innovation that's happening in terms of different industries. Uh, so yeah, like not too long after I graduated, I just moved to Singapore, didn't have any friends. So you just have, took, took a chance, went down. Took a chance. I had, I wanna say like. Why Singapore specifically? Yeah. Okay, so I lived in, in Japan for a little bit, uh, and I spoke a bit of Japanese, but not enough to feel confident to live on my own okay. at the age of like 22, 23. Um, it was really between Singapore and Hong Kong. I feel like you can get away, especially back then, um, speaking English and, and, and kind of like yeah, getting by. Um, so I thought it was like a good starter kit for me. Um, I didn't calculate how expensive both places were, um, but I think I had romanticized a lot I had like a little like Singapore like travel book, like okay. one of those things, and I would like read it every day. Um, so yeah, I think I had romanticized how small it was and how tropical it was. Uh, and then so eventually, yeah, I had, I had taken honestly maybe five or six K, which is not a lot, obviously. <laughs> um, and just moved without a job, without a visa, without like friends or family. Uh, back then you could do a six month tourist visa as an American. Um, so I just did that and I just went for it. <laughs> Yeah. And then what happened? Oh, and then... You land in Singapore. No job. Land in Singapore. Happened. My first week, I was like... Every week had a goal. So my first week, I was like, okay, we have to find an apartment. <laughs> um, and so I just like went with real estate agent to agent, found an apartment, eventually ended up... I don't know if I should be saying this, but eventually ended up living on like a couch, renting a couch for like 500 a month. And I, and I probably did that for a good six months. I remember by my fifth month, my family was like, hey... Um, Maybe you should not do this. This you should come home. Uh, but I stuck it out, and eventually I got a job within the education sector. Um, by my sixth month, was that your first job? That was my first corporate job. I would say, yeah. Like uh, it was, you know, I spent most of my twenties in Singapore. I lived here for about eight years at the time uh, until I moved to Thailand. But um, yeah, that was my first job. I would say all of my business acumen and understanding and like. Just my 20s were spent here, so really formative years were in Singapore. And how did you even get that job? Uh, <laughs> I, you know, I had a, a friend who kind of recommended um, getting involved in the education sector. Um, yeah, I had applied to what was essentially a private university here um, that kind of uh, would take diploma, degrees and diplomas from US, UK, and Australian universities mm -hmm. and offer them here. 
Um, and it was interesting. It was a very traditional Singaporean company, um, which was very new to me. Uh, yeah, yeah dropped really, right in the middle of it. Yeah, it was crazy. And like, I probably was one of like six or seven foreigners working at like a three, four hundred person company. Wow. Okay. Um, very traditional is the most polite way I can say it. Um, and I learned a lot about um, how overseas education was being sold to Singaporeans. Um, I would say it was very profit focused. I would say that the delivery was not necessarily the, the primary focus of, of yeah, yeah, at the time at least. I don't know if those things have changed. Um, but that really inspired me. I was really like, okay, well actually there's probably, there's a lot of people here um, who can't afford to go overseas and who have really big ambitions. And I just felt very strongly about like supporting them and being part of that, um, I don't know, just kind of being part of a, a better service offering, I think. Um, because the unique thing I think that's true in Asia, but especially Singapore, is there's so many talented people here doing talented things who just need to kind of speak to someone to be guided and go, right? Um, and I think the world benefits in kind of being pointed in that direction. Um, so yeah, long story short, like I worked there for a while, I'd say by my second or third year of working and living in Singapore, um, I met these two young guys. They were fresh grads from NTU. Um, they had an idea for offering a company that focused on college consulting. Um, and yeah, I was like their first hire. Uh, that company is called Cialfo. Um, how did you meet them? How did I meet them? I was just applying to jobs that was okay. in that field. They were a startup, a startup working in startups were all the rage back then. Um, and yeah, so they were great. Uh, they were extremely ambitious. Uh, and you know, the, the type of personalities that I really respect in the sense that like, fearless, like we're doing this, this is what we're doing for the next 20, 30 years, and that's it, right? Um, and as a fresh grad, I think that's quite compelling. Um, so shout out to Rohan and Stanley. Um, but yeah, uh, uh, we, in many ways, I would like to think, introduced the idea of admissions consulting to a market that was not familiar with it. Most Singaporean families were like, why would I even pay someone to send my kid overseas. If you don't mind me butting in, where did the idea to start up a college consulting company even come from? If I, uh, if I getting it right, it was their project that they did senior year for oh. at NTU okay. that they decided to say, hey, actually, this is a really good idea. I believe Rohan had a little sister who was kind of in need for that too. Uh, and then they kind of just took that project and made it into a business. Um, and then I joined them, I think about a year or six months after they had done that. And after their first MD, what was your particular role. Oh, I was an admissions consultant. Oh, you went admissions consultant. Uh, and then year on year, uh, we needed more consultants. Then right. we needed a sales team. Then we needed a marketing team. So my job was to kind of set up these different business units as I went along, um, which was, you know, like I always joke with Stanley, was like my uh, real life MBA. Um, so that was great. I mean, and, and I Learning think how to run a company from the inside. For sure. And I think it was especially interesting because we were introducing a service that existed elsewhere to a market that wasn't familiar with it. So there were only maybe two or three competitors in the market, certainly not the ones that necessarily exist today. Um, and they were mostly focused on test prep, because obviously test prep, SAT tuition, things like that, quite saturated in the market for many, many years now. Um, so that was a really nice thing to be a part of. Since then, C-Alpha has kind of evolved into a software um, uh, program, a SaaS program that, that really helps high schools kind of administer that same ambition, um, but at a larger scale. Um, so yeah, so actually, uh, you know, I've been doing, uh, I've been working in education for about 12 plus years now, but um, specifically admissions consulting has been my, 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 my wheel, right? And it must have been quite a challenge to introduce this entire new industry to the, entirely new industry to yeah. the market, right? Not just talk to parents and students about the possibilities of studying overseas and the merits of doing that, which, which I guess to a large extent would have been uh, constrained to you know sort of people who are well to do or to government scholars, but then also to convince them that there is a need to pay someone to advise them. Yeah, I think self-expression is a really big part of it. Mm -hmm. uh, most students have the pedigree to apply to most top-tier schools. That's not a doesn't make you a shoe in by any means, but I think where I find um, the particular challenges for. A lot of Singaporean and, and, and students in Asia, whether you're in JC or international schools or whatever system you're in, is how do I package all these things that I've done, because you can't submit all of them, and how do I frame it in a way that is easy to understand and make sense? Because the fact of the matter is, is most admissions officers at any given school are spending 
a very limited amount of time looking at your application, making a judgment call, and moving on to the next one. Right. And if you can't articulate who you are, why you are, and what you want to study, that's it. That's your shot gone. Um, so yeah, that was that was something that that I think uh, when you frame it like that to a lot of um, ambitious families, uh, it 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 makes a compelling offer. Yeah. And what was your, why did you stay with the company for so long? Because you were with them for quite a while, right? Ambitious team, honestly. Like, like they, every year we had more and more growth. And I think ultimately when we exited, I had been doing it for about, I want to say five or six years. I took a break. I went into a completely different venture, which is uh, virtual reality. Um, I just ran really fast in that direction as well for about two years. Um, yeah. We'll get to the virtual reality sure, bit, sure, but, sure. and I know that there was a ton of management experience that you had while yeah. at Cialfo, but I'm a little bit more interested about the face-to-face interactions you had with students. Okay, great. What, like, what about that experience? I mean, I'm sure it's an enjoyable experience. You're still very much within the industry. Yeah. Were there any you know, particularly memorable stories, uh, students, or any journeys that you, that you enjoyed? Yes. Uh, I would say that I think, oh, this is going to make me a bit emotional, but like, so, so part of Part of what I did at C Alpha was write the curriculum and the pedagogy for how we deliver admissions consulting. And I think one of the most challenging things, other than choosing your school and your program, is like this common app essay that I have to write, what's the best topic to write? The supplement essays that you have to write for each individual college, more or less straightforward. You still need coaching, but like, you know, um, it's not as self-discovery-ish. What I had were these 12 questions that I would spend about 90 minutes with a student. And I would usually do this in the beginning of my interaction with them, so maybe on like the third or fifth session with them. And these questions dove really deeply into their lives and their like secret ambitions, things that they want to express but had never had the platform to express. And so I had a lot of students from China and from Singapore who just never had been engaged by an adult in this way. So we had a lot of criers. <laughs> I had a lot of students who would be like, hey, my parents are really pushing me for this thing, but I have no interest in that major whatsoever. I had a lot of students um, who came from more conservative cultures or countries and were like um, coming out to me and like I've never had someone that I could talk to other than like my three friends at school. Um, and so you would get all these like really personal things that you'd hear about and I would be like, okay, well, if we can frame this in a way that um, speaks to who you are as a person and something that you've um, achieved and that you're proud of, this could be a really effective, great essay for you to present to the universities. And for them to kind of light up and be like, wait, I can talk about this? Oh, I can actually be honest and actually like, express myself? I think that, that I loved the most, is like kind of awakening these like conversations within families and even within the student to be like, oh, I didn't know that I could, I could do that. So you're helping people realize, discover things about themselves that they, they, marry, they very may well in the future, but, but not for another few years, right? So helping yeah. them with that process of self-reflection that in some students needs to be guided, I suppose. I mean, we can speak for both of ourselves that along the way we've been guided here and there by people. For sure. I think, I think it's really powerful, too, to put pen to paper. Because when you're expected to like write an essay about that and then submit it as, um, as I suppose, the cover letter to your application, like I'm applying to this really competitive program at MIT or, or, or Stanford, and here's this really uh, vulnerable thing that I'm sharing with myself, you're really putting them in a position um, that, that speaks even volumes beyond the application itself. Now they're like, oh, I get to wear who I am as a shield and like very proudly. Yeah. And so what you enjoyed the most were the personal interactions you had with students. Mm-hmm. But, but you had a lot of, I guess, relationships forged between yourself and the consultants as well, right? Because you were managing a team of them. And like you had alluded to earlier, you, were, you guys were really unrolling what service meant, right? And what that looked like. What, yeah. what was that experience like? So here's what I've learned. I don't think I learned this until years into doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've done like application cycles for over a decade now. Um, parents. I've learned that the, at the core of both the parent and student journey, there's just a lot of insecurity, a lot of lack of information. And while all of our competitors, including ourselves, can like wave all these different flags of all these different universities that we've helped students get into, really what you're doing is you're navigating what is a very stressful and anxious time for families. And so what I've found to be true, not all the time, 
is that even if a student doesn't get into their quote unquote dream school, Harvard or Ivy, mm -hmm. uh, some Ivy League school, right? The school that they get into or even the journey of going through where I want to study is, is so much of the reward for them. So even for parents to feel like, ah, okay, it's a decent school, it's a good school uh, uh, for, for my child, I feel safe about the decision and it's over is so much of what I think families are often looking for. Um, they don't necessarily always know that. Yeah. They kind of just see the rankings and that's what they come in and we're like, wait, this doesn't make sense. That school doesn't offer that major anyway. Uh, and the, when it's all said and done, I think that's when we get the most meaningful kind of like feedback. It's like, thank you so much for giving my son or daughter the confidence to be themselves and for us to kind of feel like, yeah, this is this this person's in a good position. We can like now safely send them off for the next four years and and trust that they're going to have a um, fulfilling and enriching and safe uh, um, uh, journey. And all those consultants that you manage, by the way, what are they doing now? Are they still in the industry? What have they moved on to do? Wow, I would say a lot of my because you would have been a lot of people's first manager. So many, right? so yeah. many. Uh, a lot of the consultants uh, are, I think, either policy or humanities focused. Not all okay. of them. Um, so like a lot our, of them. Wow, a lot of them have gone on to either start their own businesses too within the field, uh, or they've gone on to uh, working at uh, a particular university or in the education field. Um, yeah, I don't know. So you've been doing this for quite some time. You've been in the admissions space for quite a few years now. Have you ever actually had any interaction with admissions offices or the officers themselves? Yeah, so a few years ago, uh, pre-COVID, um, we took the team to visit a few admissions offices in the West Coast um, and a little bit on the East Coast as well. Um, the feedback we got from a lot of uh, admissions officers at, like UCLA and USC was, was specific to Singaporean um, applicants. So one of the questions we would ask is what would, if you could tell a Singaporean student applying next year anything, what would be the advice that you would give? And their feedback was uh, quite funny. <laughs> And I'll explain why it's funny in a second, because who they are is important. Um, but it was funny because they were like, okay, please tell, all, please tell all of your NS boys that they don't have to talk about NS. And like, because the person handling the, the application is handling um, Southeast Asian or Singaporean applicants year on year. So they're quite familiar actually with the schools locally and internationally um, and all the things that you have to do here. So they were like, okay, like, you know, Students don't feel, have to feel obligated to explain what Meet the People sessions are or even talk about it. Like there's all this like over explaining, over explaining. And I think the, the gist at multiple campuses um, was that please tell your Singaporean students that they should actually talk about things that are more unique to them, mm -hmm. not like unique to your JC, not necessarily unique to your Singaporean experience, right? Um, because they're here to learn about you. And if like a bunch of you are talking about the same experience, it's really hard to kind of pick you out um, from the rest of the crowd. And that's that's genuinely what they're trying to do. How are you different than everyone else applying from that school or that country? Um, but the thing I always like to ask uh, families and students is like, who do you think is, is reading your application? I mean, certainly it seems like an obvious question, but if you only knew who was going to read your application and read your essays, I think it would actually inform how you wrote them. What do you mean by that? Meaning to say, and I hate to use like this know your enemy type of like thing because they're not your enemy, right? Um, when I ask students or families who's reading this, they have this idea of like an old guy in a tweed jacket who probably studied what they're going to study, right? So I can talk about, I don't know, astrophysics because the person reading it definitely has a PhD in astrophysics. It's simply not true, right? Fact of the matter is, um, in the US especially, most of these people are millennials. Right? They're people who oftentimes have graduated from that university, but sometimes haven't. Right? Sometimes they're young people who like the same movies that you do. Right? They're also, like, I don't know, in their late 20s, early 30s. Not always. Right? There's obviously more senior people on those teams, too. But they're young. Right? And so I feel like a lot of students that we've worked with in the past are like, oh, I'm writing this for an adult, mm -hmm. or sorry, an older adult. Uh, I'm, re I'm writing this in a way where I have to like, explain what TikTok is. And da -da -da -da. I'm like, no, you can be fun. You can be expressive. Trust me. Like, their views are not as conservative, even, as you might think. Um, and because like your 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 readers are oftentimes um, American with like slightly more uh, liberal views, I'd say it's true for most uh, admissions officers. You can have the freedom to kind of um, take those risks um, as you find it appropriate. Um, so yeah, I think it's really important that like you do your due diligence, kind of like 
reach out, get to know you, kind of see if you can figure out who's in the admissions office, you'll come to find that like they're quite young um, and they're looking to learn about you as a person. I think it's the difference between if you thought that like your grandparents or like an old uncle that you had was reading it, you would it frame would, things. You would frame differently. things differently than if you knew it was like an yeah. older cousin or an older sibling, right? Um, so I think that's like a really key takeaway for. And so, how do students show that they're unique? Right? So, oh. so say if you've gone to a local school in Singapore, you have to do your CCA, you have to do your A levels. How yeah. do you? What are the different things you can do, and how do you talk about it in your application? For sure, I think you have to connect the dots between what's your mission. I think that's really difficult for a lot of students. Unfortunately, a lot of students are like, I just want to make money. I'm like, no, you have to go beyond. I want to be an investment banker. I want to be an investment banker. I want to help people. That's why I want to be a doctor. No, like really align something specific to your journey with the things that you've done. Um, and then really highlight that as much as you can. The more you can stand out in your application from everyone else, you're, you're, you're setting yourself up for success. Like I said like uh, uh, earlier, they are not spending a lot of time with your application. It's very quickly being reviewed. If you and also the the you have to humanize the people that are reading it. It's not robots. It's not AI. These are people who are spending three months out of the year, if that, staying up till two, three o'clock in the morning reading hundreds of applications. So, <laughs> being long-winded is not helpful. Being dry is not helpful. You want to have something. Um, that really gets their attention from the first opening line. You want to have something that really, like, um, I wouldn't say, like, don't become a caricature, but, like, really highlights who you are um, that you know would be different uh, as an engineer, different as whatever it is that you're applying for, right? Really highlight your differences more than anything else. And I think for, for students who come from a more conservative um, uh, culture, like, that can be challenging. And the more you kind of, like, push yourself to journal, the more you push yourself to have conversations that are more expressive, the, the, the more successful you'll be in your application. Do you find that most students that you've worked with in the past, or, or let's say the majority of them, misunderstand the process or misunderstand what's asked of them from, you know, even the personal essay, which is the biggest chunk of your common app? Right? Okay, so here's something I see happen often, uh, and I don't blame anyone. They'll see prompts for an essay, and they'll then kind of go through them and think about, well, which one do I feel most comfortable writing for? As if, like, that'll be the best essay. Um, I get that. You do that in high school. You do that with a lot of exams. Like, which one can I maximize my chance of mm. whatever, right? Um, actually, I would do the opposite. And this is just my pedagogy. I don't know that this works for everyone. Um, I'm like, think about what your top moments are, like, the most... Um, uh, think about the anecdotes that you have in your life that, that you know you're the most proud of, that showcases both who you are and kind of your your abilities and your achievements and what, how high you can go, and then match it to one of the prompts. Um, because if you start, like, if you start, like, narrowing down... If you down, take the path of least resistance, it's yeah. going to be the, just a straightforward, easy write. Right? Yeah, here's an example, right? If you, if you like, see, oh, that's a, uh, an essay about, like, uh, something that challenged me or a time I failed, you'll just immediately narrow down, like, you'll shortlist all of your failures and your challenges, and then you'll find the best one to, to work for that essay, not having even considered that there's so many other stories that would have been better than um, just finding the anecdote that fits to that particular prompt. Um, so really examining your, 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 you know, taking an audit and even discussing that with, with your family members and your uh, peers is really, really key before sitting down and saying, these are my uh, ideas for my essays. Okay. After CL4, there was quite a shift, wasn't there? Yeah. Yeah. For you? Yeah. So I had kind of wanted to take a break. I had been working, I think, for about eight years in the industry. Um, I then went to get into VR. I think I had been introduced, VR was all the rage back then, a few years ago. Um, and I had been introduced to it um, uh, through a few mentors, but also there was a woman here in Singapore that was offering VR education. So that was really cool. Like, kind of thinking about education and technology was just something that I was interested in. Um, I moved out of Singapore, I moved to Thailand. Uh, and actually moved two of my younger sisters there as well eventually and started a VR company. Um, we did just different solutions for different types of businesses, including education. That was just a fun thing to play with. It was my first time um, kind of navigating entrepreneurship on my own. Right. I had always been either like the managing director or the GM of different uh, companies. Um, so that was just kind of my own kind of unique venture. Uh, ultimately, uh, uh, I had my first failure, which I think is really important for anyone pursuing entrepreneurship. Um, yeah, VR is a very touch-and-go type of industry, and during COVID, that was even more go than touch. Uh, so, yeah. And was there anyone who had helped you along or inspired you to do that? Yeah, and I would say that 
it's important for people of all ages, especially students, to have mentors. Not teachers, but mentors, right? Um, I had two mentors. Uh, one of them, I think, is really dear to me. His name is Nemo. He's still my, my life uh, slash professional coach. Uh, he's someone that kind of helped me set up um, kind of some frameworks to kind of work within. But more than anything else, and I would say this is also true for, for parents when they're we're helping their, their child apply, you need someone on your side to give you educated guidance and to just cheer you on, right? I think the hardest, when students are engaging us for the service, they're having the hardest year of their academic career ever. And so with Nemo, he was just like, hey man, like, Go be the president of the VRAR Association. Oh, there's an opportunity to go speak at a German expo for VR. Go travel, book your ticket, don't even ask questions, just go. So all those things I ended up doing. Uh, oh, you want to go start a company uh, in Thailand? Go incorporate it. Like All of those things I did um, with so much more ease simply because I had someone in my corner kind of cheering me on. Um, so yeah, like, I, I can't... If you take anything away from watching this, go find a mentor in whatever it is that you're, you're interested in to achieve your goals. Yeah. And so it was a very formative, unstructured time for you, right? But one that bore fruit nevertheless, it seems? Yeah, I think so. I mean, ultimately, it afforded me a lot of time to kind of like sit back and think what I wanted to do. Uh, ultimately, I did get back into uh, education consulting. Um, I worked in another place for a while that did more than education consulting. But um, you know what's funny? Ivy Prep used to be my competitor back, back when, you when I was at Seattle later in a few later years. Um, it's a small community, right? Like even a lot of the people like I still run into, and um, even some of our competitors, like we all know each other. Oh, we bring know, up names every now. Yeah, and then. for sure. Like, oh yeah, that guy. Yeah, some of them. Like I have people even uh, you know at our competitors that are like dear friends. Um, at the end of the day, we're all here to support uh, the families and the students, and just sending talent overseas, right? Um, and, and helping people's dreams come true. So like, my philosophy has always been, especially when, when we're visiting um, uh, different expos or events, is like, you know, we're all here to serve the same people. So whether we do things differently, charge different prices, like ultimately there's a larger goal that we're, we're here for. Yeah. And when, so when, when, obviously now you're at Ivy Prep, but you were living in Thailand and you had your pick, didn't you? you had a lot of options. Why did you choose Ivy Prep in particular? You know, I hate to, to, to say it, but watching this uh, Dear Applicant segment and seeing you on camera, uh, shout out to our, our marketing team as well. Um, yeah, like, 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 I thought this was unique. I thought, I, I, have, worked at, I have worked both full-time and part-time and on a contractor basis for so many different admissions consulting companies. They all have their own style. Um, some are very conglomerate, some are very boutique. What I loved about Ivy Prep, other than of course the management team here, which is fantastic, um, was the team's pedigree and talent is unmarked, right? Like all of you are graduates from like, honestly, Ivy League schools. There's so many double degree, Oxbridge, Cambridge, uh, Penn people, um, but other than that, and you can find that actually even at other places all around mm -hmm. uh, the world in Asia. Um, what I found attractive was what this is doing. This Dear Applicants podcast and like so much of what I want to continue doing is giving a voice um, that I think is really inspiring to a lot of students and families. So much of what we do happens in a vacuum, right? We help a kid write their essays, apply to schools. Nobody wants to share what schools they went into or that they got help, even though everyone's getting help. Uh, and then we send them off. We've been sworn to secrecy. Yeah, <laughs> sure, and I get that. That's fine. But, I mean, then we just end up kind of sharing those stories amongst our staff and team, and that, that's not helpful for the larger audience. Right. So what I loved, and one of the reasons I joined Ivy Prep is because, like, you're, in, you're, in, you're interviewing now both parents and students and professionals about what their journey was, their difficulties applying, their fears. And we're touching so many different people who are watching this in ways that we can't even imagine. Right? Like there's so many, I remember I had one student one year from Neon Poly that got into Harvard and MIT. And to this day, Jaunty, I'm telling you, to this day when I go to schools and I mention that, they know who he is. Like so many polytechnics, we're doing a, a, um, an event with Singapore Poly next week, or this week rather. And, and like there's so many people that are like, yeah, that guy's legend. I'm like, absolutely. Oh, you were speaking to a few of them. Yeah, the for sure. Uh, and I'm like, that's, so that's what it is. Like, that's why I joined Ivy Prep. I was like, yeah, okay, so basically what we need to do, um, as, as much as I'm interested in kind of 
growing the company, I'm really interested in giving uh, Southeast Asian uh, students and parents a voice to share, just to share their experiences and their woes and their fears, because it's really helping people. Um, yeah, it's just helping everyone to, to kind of hear those things. And that ties into your earlier point, right, where although, yes, there are tons of companies in this space and technically we're all competitors, what we're doing is providing an education yeah. uh, for students in Singapore, right, for whether sure. international students or local poly JC students. Yeah, even if you're not working with us, I know that, like, just by viewing this and, like, putting a voice out there. So just like, perspective, story. Absolutely, right? At the end of the day, like, this is, this is we're here to inspire and to kind of consult. Um, there's a lot of information, like, uh, like you can Google the utmost amount of, of ways to kind of write your common app application, but you can't necessarily see uh, someone kind of in their second year of NS trying to like juggle right. their applications and do this at the same time, or like you can't necessarily get... You know, a Singaporean student juggling sure. their prelims or whatever with yeah. their uh, exam prep, with their exam prep, with their college application writing. Yeah. It's just all so much that goes into one yeah. small confined time. Right? Yeah. So, so to answer your question, kudos to you to, in, to being a great interviewer. Oh, no, I think we gotta and thank the guys behind the camera. <laughs> and our team to getting, I'm flattered on their behalf. Yeah, and to get in our team to getting like the like interesting people to interview. I think is I really think, key. I think that is something that I think you've hit what we what we've been trying to do, which is not so much here's what you can do to get into X college, one, two, three. It's more understanding individual stories and perspectives, see what's worked before, what hasn't, uh, and try and then make formulate your own journey, right? Yeah. A pathway to whatever your dream school is, whether yeah. it's in the US, UK, whether it's an Ivy League or a local state school, whatever that might be. Mm. Um, and we're very happy to have you, of course, by the way. Uh, what, what, was your, what is your vision for Ivy Prep? I'm, I'm interested. I'm sure a lot of parents will be as well. To do more of this, to okay. do more of exactly that. Um, we do have plans of, I mean, at the end of the day, like we want to service as many students as we can. Um, I'm looking to build all of our teams uh, so much more next year. Um, but you know, what's been a big part of our discussion is how do we do more things that reach more people? Um, and I'm a little bit uh, biased towards like media, and mm. I really do. Where did that come from, by the way? I think it's just my interest in 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 art and okay. digital media and things like that. Um, I, I think that there are so many more opportunities um, to showcase different stories, um, and whether it's another podcast, whether it's, um, I don't want to give anything away, but like, you know, whether it's like documentaries or interviews or right. um, just things that are even happening uh, with international students, but not necessarily in Singapore. I think there's just so much opportunity to kind of like give more voices, give more voices a platform. Um, yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's the long and short of kind of like what I'm looking to do with Ivy Prep specifically that I think is different than, than yeah, others. Okay. And you've been boots on the ground half a year now. Yeah. How have you found the team? Well, what are your thoughts on <laughs> the people that you've been working with? You guys are great. You guys are, oh, I, I would say to, to uh, my supervisor's credit, um, she's hired a lot of talented people. We need to interview her too. We do. <laughs> um, she's, she's gone overkill in terms of like pedigree and backgrounds of people. Like really, really, like it's hard to find admissions consultants. Um, they're not just a bunch of people that graduated from uh, great schools. They're people who are genuinely interested and have the spirit of wanting to help their juniors. Um, and what I, I mean, this is not always true for all consultants, but I do love finding people who can relate to a lot of the students that they're, they're working with here, right? So it's always great to find um, a student who, or even have a specialist who's been to med school, is Singaporean, helping a student in that exact situation. Um, yeah, I think that's kind of what sets us apart from a lot of uh, how we do things here. Something I really enjoy about this team is that I think it's rare to find uh, admissions consulting company that has a core of full-timers that are all under the same roof, mm -hmm. right? So they're working together in front of each other, just back to back. Yeah. Um, so if there's ever something, I just turn to my left and ask this person something or look over my screen and then ask that consultant for, for some information. So there's no disjointedness. And I think that helps a lot with our students and parents as well, because if someone has a question, yeah. right? And they come to me as someone who, you know, is a relationship manager or who has introduce the program to them and they want something from a consultant, all I have to do is just shout over the, just shout a little loudly into the corner and go, hey, you know, can you come here and tell me that? For sure. And so that's something that I've really appreciated about the team. Yeah. And of course, there are uh, frequent lunches and yeah. Sunday brunches and yeah. whatnot, right? Which is also quite fun. Yeah. I mean, we work together as a larger network and team yeah. behind the scenes, but I think at the end of the day, like, parents want to work with one, one or two people. They, they don't want, like, a whole big... 
uh, conglomerate of people they have to communicate with, right? And I think that just, I think that's a better experience that we kind of offer, yeah. And parents who are watching this video might be doing so curious to understand the, the people behind Ivy Prep, yeah. but also might want to understand what makes us different. And so apart from uh, a team of very qualified in-person consultants, <laughs> what, what, do you, what would you say makes us different from the bevy of consultancies that are out there in Singapore and, and maybe even, you know, Pan-Asia? Yeah, I mean, we, we, the way that we even structure our service is we do have, like, a dedicated um, family relations officer okay. that can kind of, like, uh, just be a person that... I, would, I think of them as a concierge. They kind of deal with parents, and whenever they have some issue or uh, communicative thing that they need to kind of give feedback on, like, that's something that I think we do differently. Um, other than that, one of the things that uh, we've started to do already is having dedicated events for parents. I think students get serviced a lot in terms of, like, informational sessions right. and things like that. I think no one really kind of thinks about the parents. They're footing the bill. And I think that they have a different perspective uh, and, and amount of concerns than, than the students do. Students usually want to know, like, how do I maximize my application to get in? Moms and dads want to know, like, is that safe, right? So I think a lot of, like, just conversations about even managing stress in the, in the, uh, at home. I think a lot of uh, what we do now is, like, when we have partnerships with different institutions or have events, we always try to feature a parent on our panels um, because we think that their perspective is um, just as important as, um, you know, the woes or the the woes or the the highlights of a graduate from a different school. And there are quite a few upcoming events now, right, which we should link to this video somehow. We definitely will, yeah. Uh, which, which is open for parents, right, so they can yeah, come yeah, down. Absolutely. And, and just sort of, yeah, absolutely. It's highly encouraged. Yeah, can just sign up and, and hear from people who have, well, some of whom have been on this show, yeah. but who have definitely walked that path to university in the U.S., U.K., even Australia, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'd say one more thing is, like, we very much focus on this being a business for families. Right. Right, like I wouldn't. I really don't like when students come in by themselves. Um, I mean, I. I mean, more kudos to them for kind of taking the initiative. But more often than not, like even when we go through essays, even when we go through interviews, even when we kind of do everything, this is this is a group, like this is a group effort, right? Um, Families need to be involved in a lot of the decision making. I think a lot of other places are like, oh, by the way, mom and dad, this is the college shortlist that we recommended mm -hmm. for your uh, child. But no, they need to be part of that too, right? They need to also feel safe and secure. Trying to loop the parents in it. For sure. So, so critical and key here. Yeah. Okay. Is there anything that makes the team unique? Uh, not so much the company, but the individuals. So what I do, and, 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 and I, I would say I practice this no matter where I am and what business I, I'm, I'm operating, um, I always make it a point to learn what everyone's individual dream is. That's just a like, personal thing for me. I want to know exactly, like, do the opportunities that we're pursuing as a company and as management, do they align with what your dreams are? Mm -hmm. People just work better and are happier when they know that, like, yeah, that actually serves my, my larger commitments. So for you, for example, uh, you want to be famous. So <laughs> no, quite, I'm kidding. Quite I'm the opposite. Yeah. yeah, I mean, like, but everyone here has, like, these individual kind of motivations, things that they want to, to pursue more of. And I think it's my job to kind of um, create those opportunities as much as possible in the same way that we do for our students. And I, I love open-ended questions, so, so to leave the students and parents on that sort of note, what do you think the future of the Ivy, of future of the Ivy Prep, what do you think the future of Ivy Prep is? Oh, I think it's more of this. I think more it's more okay. community engagement. I think right. it's more media. I think uh, the future of Ivy Prep is something that really doubles down on representing Southeast Asians okay. um, more than anything else. You know, um, I'm not interested in taking over the world. I'm interested so in... So a company in Southeast Asia for yeah. Southeast Asians. Yeah. Yep. And Singaporeans, I guess, first yep. and foremost, right? Sure. Okay. Any words of wisdom or any parting words to our guests? Ooh, yeah. Uh, just keep swimming. Just keep swimming? <laughs> no, like I said earlier, this, this, you know, like, like, find a mentor. Okay. And be as communicative about what your dreams are as early as possible. Have those, uh, have those conversations, even if they're scary, um, soon, like now. Right? Have it with a friend, have it with a mentor, have it with a teacher, whoever you need to speak to. Like, just make sure that you're, you're talking about what your dreams are. Sure thing. Yeah. Okay. Well, in that case, thank you so much for joining us today, Justin. And thank you, students and parents, for joining us as well. We'll catch you next time. That's all for today's episode of Dear Applicants. Thank you so much for joining us. I hope that you found the content valuable and insightful. If you'd like to learn more about our guests or the topics we discussed, be sure to check out our show notes for links and further resources.